comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Soon you will wish you had not leapt through the portal after your professor. I have let you live to witness the obliteration of all you hold dear, knowing you can do nothing to save it. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of Dudes. Dude, his dudeness, duder, el duderino. Dude, dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. The dudes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legion of Dudes podcast. This is episode 239, the finally getting to the amazing X-Men. Our Age of Apocalypse is winding down uh, special. So this is, again, the amazing X-Men 1 through 4. We thought we were going to wrap things up with this last episode, but as we kind of got into it, we're like, you know... We want to really want to be able to take our time with giving final thoughts and what, you know what we think and and take our time with uh, with Omega. So we thought we'll just split it up and do two, and then we will be ready to start the next big thing after this. So um, so tonight again is just Amazing X Men one through four. And joining with me tonight are Mr. Doctor Esquire himself, Jordan from Jersey, and uh, Jim Dietz. Good evening, guys. Good evening. Heyo. And, and just so our podcast listeners understand how much we love them, Jim and I are both stepping away from the incredible Bioshock Infinite to bring you this episode, so you are welcome. Yeah, man. Somebody had to jump on that grenade, and it was us. I appreciate <laughs> that, because I know, especially in the beginning, when you first start playing, it's like, that's the sweet spot, right? You know, you just don't want to put it down. Oh, yeah. And uh, I haven't even just started playing. I mean, I've been playing for like six hours, and I still don't want to put it down. This game is amazing. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about that, although we could for a long time. I'm sure next week you guys will have quite a bit to say about Bioshock Infinite when we do our BS show for April. Oh, yes. <laughs> BS, Bioshock. Hey, that works out great. Yeah, wow. there you go. It's a double purpose. Also, I think coming up before too long, we're going to have some announcements, and that's that. I'll just tease that out there. But I think there's going to be some shuffling around and some changes and some some good stuff coming down the pike. But uh, when we have hard details, we will uh, we'll we'll pop that out there. We're going to become an all Justin Bieber podcast. Damn it, Jim! <laughs> oh. I was like Jimmy, 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 whoa. Can't tell all Bieber you all the time. Well, we're not here to talk about Justin Bieber, but we are here to talk about the amazing X-Men 1 through 4. And this is by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert. So this is the, the comparison book to, um, to X-Men that they were doing at this time, uh, both of them. And these four, you know, we, we didn't... I wasn't really big on the covers of the last uh, of, uh, of what we did with Generation Next. Some of them have been kind of hit and miss. Uh, but 
I think Astonishing and Amazing have had pretty good covers, and I, I really, really like this cover to Amazing X-Men number one with a Storm and, and a Quicksilver you know, front and center on the cover. We get Iceman down bottom. I just, I just really like the 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 pose. I mean, very '90s. You know, the whole posing and um, you know the way that that you know the 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 hips and the and the and the legs are drawn and the big hair and the whole nine yards. But uh, yeah, what is up with Quicksilver's hair? <laughs> he's channeling his inner Logan. <laughs> if anybody's channeling their inner Logan, it's uh, it's Banshee. So he's got the mutton chops all the way up, yeah. just like Logan. Yeah, indeed. But uh, uh, before we but get yeah, into just, the meat of the book, I just wanted to say Fabian kind of runs hot and cold for me sometimes. I mean, he had a decent run on Thunderbolts, but some of the stuff in here, I mean, some of the some of the writing, especially some of the, the narration, is a little on the heavy-handed side. I know that was kind of the style at the time, and it was supposed to be great portent for the Age of Apocalypse or whatever, since it is a post-apocalyptic setting. But I, I just find his scripts like very variable in quality. You know, not yeah. as not as much as Jeff Loeb is like Jeff Loeb is either on or he's not. Fabian like has in one script I'll have like things that are good and things that are not so good, at least in my my opinion. No, I agree. I, I think overall though this is this is pretty well written. I, I really liked. I, I mean, and I know we'll get to this in the end, but just in general, I really like the story that's being told. Um, I, I like that these issues are almost self-contained. You know, each issue kind of tells a discrete story for to some degree. There's not a lot of uh, like serious cliffhanger between one one issue and the next. The reason we did this one last also is because this is like the culmination of everything. Um, all of the plot lines from the other books kind of funnel down, especially into the third and fourth issue as we go into Omega. So even though the you know we got all these miniseries coming out every month, you know all the issue ones, twos, threes, and fours, but this one really you know felt like again, like I said, especially issue three and four that things were culminating uh, with all the other stories uh, together. So that, again, that's why I kind of left this one for last. Yeah, four, four especially, like, goes right into Omega. Like, literally, like, oh, yeah. the last yeah. page of one is the first page of the other almost. So it totally makes sense you'd go last on this one. Yeah, it was a little annoying having read them. I mean, we read them in their own orders, but we didn't read them in order of publishing here, so it was a little bit annoying to have to go back and remember what was going on in all those other books before they converged, but it worked out, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing about the Omnibus is it goes in mostly chronological order, so I think, and I haven't actually sat down and read it, but I think it actually does it in chronological where you may get two issues of the same mini back-to-back when there's an immediate cliffhanger. But it tries to tell the story chronologically uh, for the most part. But uh, again, because each of the minis kind of have their common theme and their, their set of characters, um, you know, rather than having to, you know, have that first episode be, you know, those first two, three episodes be just really long and really heavy. We thought we'd, you know, s- spread it out amongst all the episodes like we've, we've talked about in the past. So I guess we'll dive right into it. And uh, issue one starts with a prologue. And for the most part, this prologue just rehashes a lot of the things that we've come to know in the in the other miniseries. You know that America is pretty much under the control of Apocalypse, and you know New York has been taken over with Apocalypse's fortress, and everything else around it is kind of in ruin. And we see that there's a bunch of humans that are kind of migrating and making their trek northward to um, to Booth Harbor Bay or Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Um, where they hope to get airlifted out of 
uh, America into Europe because they, they believe that Europe is this uh, bastion of freedom and uh, human openness. Uh, and we've seen some of that in the other minis, with especially with the Weapon X, where we saw... Uh, you know, Wolverine and Jean Grey going before the Human High Council and that, you know, that that they've made their headquarters over in Europe uh, so that, you know, that, again, the humans kind of have gotten word to to migrate here as this is kind of the big airlift out. And uh, what's her name? Doesn't look uh, doesn't look malicious at all. She looks totally normal in her black cloak and uh, red accents and and white fingers. Don't forget. Yeah, true. <laughs> Nobody. She looks like Death. I mean, literally, she looks like the Marvel character Death. Yeah, and nobody would confuse her with a mutant with white skin and all, but... Well, she just doesn't get a lot of sun, that's all. Yeah, well, you know, it's winter. But we see that this character is Vanessa Carlisle. So we see that this character talking to these humans um, and kind of reassuring the children that Eurasia is really uh, the the bastion of freedom and that everything is, is great and dandy and rainbows and uh, unicorns over there. And... Um, this character of, of Vanessa Carlisle, is, we know her in the 616 as being copycat. And she's able to, she's kind of like, she's a shapeshifter, but um, a little bit different than, than Mystique even. She literally can change form and copy an individual down to the DNA level. So it's almost, it's pretty much indistinguishable, the character that she mimics and, and herself. And uh, there was a big arc in, in X-Force around this time where where she she was actually doubling Domino and was kind of uh, cozied up to Cable and there was, you know, she kind of was up to no good. And so there was a lot of distrust and Cable thought that it was really Domino because, like I said, you couldn't distinguish. And so when when the two of them kind of met up, uh, they had a big big dust up in in that book. Um, Also, she was involved with Deadpool from before he was, um, you know, he got cancer and and was kind of the character that that we know him now. This was kind of um, way in the past. Uh, and and he pretty much kind of left her her high and dry. I forgot about the whole Domino thing, but I actually think I have those issues. They're actually pretty good. That 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 era X Force, that early early era of X Force. This is like right around you know fifteen to 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 thirty thirty five, like right before this. It was actually some pretty good stuff going on in in that book. Yeah, it was one of the books that first got me into comics. Really, I've got almost a complete run of both it and Cable. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that at the beginning. And I think that's uh, Nisiesi as well, right? Yes, uh, Jordan Nicieza did write X Force around this time. Um, looking back, I had double check back on Gambit and the Externals because that was the counterpart book, and uh, indeed he was the writer on that. Cool. So we see that uh, Carlisle is walking away, and it almost seems like she's very bulky in in the first few panels, and then and then kind of we see her as uh, the character we more commonly know as as Copycat as she comes back to the other Madri and um, the Madri want to report back to Apocalypse what's going on because they feel like, you know, that the humans, um, you know, actually think that they're going to get out of here and that Apocalypse uh, should know what's going on. And the Madri are the cult of Madrox clones, right? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I had that right in my mind there. It comes into play later in the story. Yeah, which has a really cool... I I really... uh, you know, dig when we get to when we get to the resolution of that because we've kind of seen these madri throughout the other books, and it, it really comes to a head uh, at the end of the story in a really cool way, in, in my opinion. So we cut back to Bishop, and he's uh, back at at the former Xavier Estate in Westchester County, and again we get more of this 
a rehash of what we know and that, um, you know, Bishop has been wandering around for 20 years. And Has he really been in the Age of Apocalypse world for 20 years? Because he went back in time to the point where, where Xavier was killed. That's where the timeline diverged. Everybody else vanished because Bishop is always one of those characters, and this comes to play, I think, a little later on, where he kind of gets a pass with... Um, with weird time travel stuff where he can exist in places where other characters would not based on how their future selves wouldn't get to a point where they would travel back in time. And so, so when that all happened, when, when Legion killed Xavier, the rest of them all disappeared because now the timeline has diverged. Xavier would have never formed the school, which would have never held those mutants, which would have never allowed them to come back in time in the first place. But because Bishop is a man out of time, he, he kind of gets a pass on that. Yeah, which is, I, for some reason I thought the time frame was, was shorter, that it wasn't that long. So, my bad. Yeah. No, no, no. There's a lot of, lot of part, moving parts on the board, a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff going on. So as Bishop uh, walks by, he sees there's a, a, a big uh, crack of lightning. We see that uh, we cut back over to the X-Men who are engaging in an exercise against a sentinel. And we see that... Uh, in this version of the book, of this incarnation of the X-Men, I should say, it's Exodus, who was a, a big character around this time, especially with the whole, you know, with the, with the way that the whole Avalon story took place. He was one of the acolytes. He kind of uh, felt it was his right to kind of ascend after what happened with, you know, Magneto and the, and the fall of Avalon and, and all that. And he became this super, really, you know, big, powerful mutant that hung around for a while. And they've, He's kind of one of those that, that was a creation of this time, and they used him for a while, and then he just kind of fell off the board for a while, and every so often they kind of bring him back. And uh, somewhat recently, he, he played a bigger part in the whole Second Coming storyline and uh, you know, some, of, some of the recent X-Men events, I should say. Um, he's kind of come, come back, especially when, when Xavier was shot by, uh, by Bishop um, during the whole... Uh, hope you know saga thing that was going on and exodus kind of came back into the into the picture then how about those uh those 90s digital colors we oh, just yeah. were le- just were learning about how to how to use the digital colors and it really i mean it's been kind of indicative of all these age of apocalypse books but that this uh two-page spread really kind of uh, you know spells it out for me yeah there's just i mean as much as we talk about improvement in the coloring process uh it's still somewhat. We just get we get a little more shading, but it's still very spot colorish. But just the palette, I don't. I, I just and it's and it kind of permeates. You know, like you're saying, Jim, all of the books. But it's a lot of like oranges and yellows and 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 a lot of reds, like deep reds. Um, I'm, I'm just I'm not a fan of of the palette at all. Um, it, throughout that you know used in this time period in general. Yeah, it's it's like. It's like all of a sudden they were upgraded from the box of 16 colors of crowns to the 256 colors of crowns, and they're like, we need to use all of them. Exactly, yeah. This is pretty quickly after Marvel had acquired Malibu just to get their digital coloring systems and whatnot into their books. So, I mean, it's one of those things of, you know, we can do this, but, you know, now we know a little bit better that we shouldn't, you know, and there really wasn't that kind of experimentation that we see now with, like, different gradations or different textures or, you know, in the colors and things like that. So it's just, it really stands out now compared to comics that we see nowadays, how bright and and garish these colors are. Yeah. 
yeah, it makes me, you know, it, it, not to get too far off topic, but I really appreciated recently when they've kind of gone back and recolored stuff. I, I know I've talked about it on the podcast before, but the, the Simons and Thor omnibus is one of those where they actually went through and recolored it. Um, I've been reading the Chronicles of Conan, which is which are reprints. Dark Horse did reprints of the entire Marvel run from the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. That thing ran forever um, of the Conan book. And they took the original Barry Windsor Smith and uh, Roy Thomas stories and they recolored those with modern techniques. And it's really, uh, you know, a huge leap, especially high grade, you know, that high grade paper and then recoloring with modern techniques with, you know, shading and and, uh, you know, a much softer palette in some cases than what we're seeing here. And it and it, it the difference is incredible. And it's not a slight against the guys that were coloring you know, back in the day, it's just unfortunately they they were uh, you know victims of the technology. I mean, they they you know just based on the way four color printing worked, they they only had so much to work with. So uh, it it is what it is, as they say. So again, we we get this uh, this nice two page spread. They're having this coordinated attack on this sentinel that's shown up. And one of the things I noticed in this book specifically, I guess when I was reading through it again, and, and it came to mind is uh, since the sentinels are creations of the humans uh, to go after the mutants and and they're coming from uh europe to 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 help with you know lifting these humans out um it almost looks like the heads on them resemble like the parliament wigs you know the the white wigs that they wear in parliament you know just the way that it it, it, it almost looks like curls down the side so i don't know if if being that they're based out of England, if that if that was the look that they were purposely going for, or if it was just some attempt to modernize the Sentinel look, it's also reminiscent of Egyptian headdresses as well, which has a lot to do with Apocalypse. Although, why you dress up the enemies of the uh, of the main villain like his own people is beyond me. But whatever, it kind of resembles Mesmero as well, the other X Men villain. So we see that um, again. They're 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 having this coordinated uh, attack on these sentinels, and the the purpose of this is really to take this data disc that Quicksilver has, be able to distract the sentinel enough, crack it open, insert this disc in. This is almost like a Tron sequence, right? You know, they're trying to get the master control program to to open up, insert the disc, which will reprogram them to not alert on their bio signatures, so that uh, they could kind of operate free to assist. Uh, the the humans in 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 getting lifted out um, and to fight off Apocalypse's forces without having to fight the Sentinels at the same time. I also like how Quicksilver is a lot a lot less of a dick in the AOA universe than we yes. you know are used yes. to him being in the six one six. He's kind of stepped up to be a leader under his father's uh, guidance, as it were, and he's a lot less you know of a of a jerk. Yeah, and I guess you know, being that Wanda is dead at this point, and he's much, much closer to uh, to Magneto. He's he, you know, he doesn't seem to have a lot of that animosity and that ab- and those abandonment issues that we see in the six one six. And you know, obviously, him being very close to Rogue, and, and like you said, Jim, being this team leader for this uh, for this squad of X Men, I just I, I I I much prefer the the AOA Apocalypse or Quicksilver to the six one six as well. The other thing that that and I'm not sure if we talked about this before or not, but one of the things that I really noticed uh, in in the AOA version, and and this kind of had repercussions. I think we did talk about this before. Um, it had repercussions after the fact. Is the fact that Iceman is extremely amped up in this in this universe. The way he uses his powers are well beyond anything 
that he had used up until this point in the in the six one six. He's always kind of been a bit of a joke, you know, the youngster, the the kid. Even even when the next round of mutants ca- came in, uh, he was still viewed as the kid because he was so much younger than the rest of them uh, than the the original five at, at the time. Um, but to see him, you know, doing things like um, elemental inversion and basically being able to, you know, turn into to mist and vapor and, and reform himself, um, just just him, you know, increasing his mass, you know, you know, tenfold and shrinking back down. Um, it's it's just a really aggressive use of the Iceman character. We've seen that quite a few times here in Age of Apocalypse. I mean, think of Sunspot or um, even Paris later on in this very story. You know, he gets pushed having to teleport all those people. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, we see it a lot with a lot of characters because of the extreme conditions of the AOA universe. They've had to learn how to use their powers in new and, and you know, exton- in, in interesting ways. I kind of uh, prefer... Uh, you know, a more utile Iceman, you know what I mean? It kind of takes the, the joke away from his character, makes him a little more, you know, of a threat, you know. You're absolutely right about him being the kid of the original five, you know, they used to always make fun of him. I mean, he used to look like a snowman with boots. That used to be his, his uniform, yeah. you know. Um, this is a really cool and, and different take on Bobby Drake, and I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you. And and they keep flirting with it in the 616. You know, every so often they'll do the whole, "Oh, you're not reaching your potential," and then he'll he'll kind of change his form. I I really don't like the form he's taken now in the 616, which is that kind of funky, spiky uh I, I don't know, I can't even I don't even know how to describe it. It's very uh Bachalo influenced. Even when Bachalo's not drawing him, uh, the other artists have seemed to kind of taken on that form. And I really don't like the the way that looks. I really I prefer the bulkier, um, you know, version of of Iceman, uh, it, or even this version that we see here, where he's kind of very spiky and, uh, you know, where he doesn't have his mouth. You know, we can't even see his mouth and and the hair. It's almost kind of like that Wolverine hair that he's got. Um, but I, I tend to like, you know, again, like I said, the the bulkier version of uh, of Iceman, almost kind of like the you know Super Friends Iceman, that 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 style of Iceman. Not super friends. Spider Man is amazing. Spider Man and his amazing friends, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can tell it's the, after the apocalypse because Dazzler smokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We tend to, but she gets told off for it. Yeah, exactly. Over and over again. Yeah, yeah. That becomes. We get it. Yeah, it's like we get it. Smoking bad. We yes, we know. You're so evil. This public, and this is before the Casada era. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess if it was Casada here, they wouldn't even allow it. But um, so we see that that this was all an exercise. That this wasn't a real sentinel that was attacking them. Uh, that Pietro wasn't quite fast enough. That he needed to um, either move faster or be, as Nanny puts it, uh, seventy-two meters closer to the sentinel um, at the point that Exodus uncur- uncovers its terminal core. So again, they're really trying to get their timing down and and exercise. Uh, you know, g- repeat over this. Uh, this battle. Uh, we also find out that Banshee was retired and he's kind of come out of retirement to assist them, which uh, kind of mirrors in the 6162 that Banshee is kind of, uh, well, I mean, he's, he's spoilers. He's dead now, but um, uh, early on, you know, he, he kind of, he was a part of the, you know, the, the revamp giant size team. Then he pretty much retired off with Moira on uh, Muir Island. And then he's kind of come back and gone. And then he kind of came back for, Generation X, so he's he's kind of he's he's kind of uh, come and gone 
in the 616 as well. So it's kind of interesting to see that they, that that aspect of his character seems to have, uh, uh, carried forward. So after, in the aftermath of this little exercise here, we see that, uh, the Sentinel starts to, to move again and it's, it's been reactivated and, uh, they all start to, to freak out a little bit and go on. And then Magneto makes his appearance and then basically chastises them for, uh, not keeping an eye on the Sentinel for letting themselves be distracted, because uh, you never know when you know an enemy that you think is down is not is not quite down. Especially when it's not real. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the other thing that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> jumping ahead a little bit, but we get uh, we get on the next page that we find out that uh, the Sentinel was just basically a hard light construct by Dazzler uh, that she's able to do. So this again, a, kind of a cool use of her power, which is very similar to how the danger room works in the, in the main 616 they used, you know, that she, technology uses what they call hard light to, um, to basically make all these constructs and allow them to, uh, to interact physically with them, uh, and, and, you know, ramp up and down the, the level of danger. Uh, again, we get, uh, th- this kind of, it's almost a full page splash here. We get a Magneto and it's very, again, very nineties with, uh, him, you know, I don't know what it is about the '90s too. The other thing with the big flowing capes, where the we saw, a lot, I saw it a lot in Superman in the '90s, but where you know, you the the hero or the villain actually holds the cape in both of their you know hands, like it's kind of wrapped in the hand and then flowing around. So again, very very uh, much in the time period. Spawn. Although of all the things that I I could complain about in '90s art, giant capes doesn't really bother me that much. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Just makes me think of Spawn. Yes. I mean, yes. Every time I see Spawn, it's just like, you know, here's the figure, and the cape is like 70 feet long, you know. I mean, even from the next page here, where after Allison takes apart the hard light thing, I mean, look how big Magneto's cape is compared to everyone else. You know, his cape takes up like a quarter of that panel. Yeah, yeah. So again, we see that uh, that Bishop comes out and um, you know basically calls him a bunch of dreamers that uh, you know for for you know them just being kind of foolish. Um, but they're not the only ones. <laughs> true, true. Uh, I like that you know in the on the next panel when we kind of get the reveal of of the fact that the Sentinel was just a hard like construct. We again we get this this close up of. Uh, of Bishop and he's got this kind of like cybernetic attachment and his eye is like kind of half blown out. It's like red. Um, but it's funny that, 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 uh, up doesn't have the M over his, uh, right eye either. So a little, little gaff in the art there, the inker must've missed something there. So again, Magneto kind of reiterates his plan here. Uh, you know, as far as what the other teams are doing and we get the little caption box here that says, um, you know, to check out Astonishing, X-Men, Excalibur, Generation X, and Giant, you know, Gambit and the External. So, again, he, he's kind of rehashing, you know, what we know from, from the other minis at, at this point. Um, so the team knows that, they, that they're, you know, again, they're ready to uh, take on their goal, which is to head off to Maine, protect the humans, uh, you know, from any of Apocalypse's forces, and make sure they get out of, of the, you know, of America and head off towards, towards Europe. And again, this is where we get kind of this, uh, 
you know, amped up super Iceman that, that we're talking about where he, he starts to take on this gaseous form and basically says that uh, he could use uh, moisture molecular inversion, which I'm guessing is basically he's going to turn them into turn them all into water vapor um, and uh, and carry them off to uh, uh, to, fl- to to fly and then, um, you know, put them back to normal, uh, which is kind of a scary proposition. This one close-up of Magneto where his eyes are glowing. He's holding, like, the crystal ball or whatever in his hand. Uh, it, mm-hmm. reminded me of, it reminded me of Strong Bad. <laughs> I don't know why. I think because of the glowing eyes under the helmet or whatever. But um, It, it rem- <laughs> reminded me of... Uh, of uh, uh, Jawas? No. Um, Court of Owls? No. Um, Onslaught, I'm sorry. Reminded me very much of Onslaught. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Although I think I like Jim's idea, and I'm just going to read the rest of the book in Strong Bad's voice whenever Magneto talks. <laughs> Body dead. Uh, so you know, Banshee decides he's not going to have any of it. Uh, you know that that basically three of them can fly, and uh, those who can't, the rest of them will. You know, those that fly will just carry. Um, Magneto pretty much says, "Nope, there's another way." Um, Exodus can can teleport them, and uh, he you know he says you know know that you know I can't I can't do that you know I don't have those kind of powers, and Magneto you know says, "Do you trust me?" And he says, "Of course I do. You saved my life." Uh, as we'll find out, find out that you know Mag- um, Exodus was um, you know being held held by Apocalypse, and and Magneto was able to free him and give him the life he's had, so he owes this uh, this great debt to to Magneto. And uh, he has total faith in him. So Magneto basically says, you know, that's enough. You know, you, you can do this. You just need to, to focus and concentrate, and you'll be able to, to teleport the team there. And uh, so as we see the team sitting there, standing there, uh, they all uh, disappear. And uh, I, I love this little bit we get with Magneto where he says, for years I tried to prevent Exodus from using his powers to their fullest for fear he might become as corrupted as those we oppose. Um, and now basically he says, you know, look, it's, it's, well, we have no choice. We have to, uh, you know, whatever the future holds, it's the present now that we need to deal with. Otherwise we're not going to have a future to really even be concerned with. And, uh, again, a lot of parallels to what happened in the 616 and the 616, he didn't have that relationship with Magneto or anyone really to keep his powers in check. He was left to be, uh, you know, kind of on his own and to his own devices and became this Omega level in the 616, this Omega level mutant that, uh, that, you know, the X-Men, you know, really can't, I mean, he's almost indestructible. So of course the X-Men arrive in Maine and, um, we see that again, that, that the humans are, uh, kind of hiding out and, and making camp. And, uh, we see this boy, this boy who, who we'll find out his name, Jeremy, um, is running along and bumps into, uh, Quicksilver, and, um, you know, the kid is, is a little, you know, he's apologizing and we see that Quicksilver kind of has a, has a soft spot, um, for this kid, you know, he doesn't get upset with him. He just, you know, tells him, you know, it's okay, but you know, just watch where you're, you're running. Uh, and, and as, as Pietro walks away, we kind of get this little, um, you know, dialogue, uh, you know, uh, thought balloon almost like where, um, you know, the narrator kind of says he will never have a son in this life. Um, a joy denied him by the choice he made to fight alongside his father. Um, and, you know, ba- the the outcome of this is 
if he did have a son, if he did have a child in this world, that knowing what he has to do, which is going to erase this reality and rebuild everything, uh, if he had a son of his own, he doesn't know that uh, that he would be able to do that. That as lonely as he is now, um, even if he had a son, he he doesn't think he could you know allow the reality to be wiped away with and him not have a counterpart on the other side. You know, he'd basically be you know causing the death of his own son or daughter. A little bit of a of a heavy moment for for a next book. So we cut back uh, to the team. They've kind of made their own camp here. Uh, they've got everything set off, and you know they're just again they're just kind of reiterating what their what their plan is, uh, and and they're ready to go. And at this point, we cut over to Storm, who is kind of flying low against this um, defense tower of Apocalypse, and her hope is that she could use her lightning powers to disrupt the defensive communication area long enough for the sentinels to come in and and blow it away and uh i i really like again the 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 keyboard art i think is is really uh, for the most part well done i mean you know kind of uh, exaggerated poses and um you know flamboyant capes aside and, and even the color palette issues like we talked about but uh the bit where we see storm kind of going low over the water with one leg out and one leg kind of bent um, and, and the ice, you know, forming up, I, th- I thought was a really cool panel. And then this panel of the Sentinels, uh, the coloring in this one really didn't bother me so much. The green was a little bit much, but, but the fire with the orange and then the Sentinel colors, you know, it's a little more muted with the blues and the reds, um, and then blasting this defense tower. I, I just, I just thought that was a really, and, and the perspective shot, like we got it, I thought it was a really cool panel. I like, I like Fathum. Yes. <laughs> hey, that's my job to love the uh, the sound effects, it's, the automatopoeia. It's very uh, a Simonson-ish. The Flathoom or the, the art uh, itself? The Flathoom. Simonson was really, like, if, <laughs> if you read Simonson's Thor, I mean, Jim can attest to this, there's a lot of, like, cracooms and uh, uh, very exaggerated uh, sound effects that, that we see. And they, they, a lot of times, are incorporated into uh, the actual acts of explosions or uh, goings on themselves. Gotcha. So again, so Storm was able to kind of distract them long enough. The Sentinels were able to destroy this tower. And uh, as the humans are kind of getting ready to uh, to be rescued, they could kind of see the, the Sentinels off in the background. Boy that uh, Pietro ran into earlier sees something off uh, in in the distance there and decides to um, to 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 kind of walk towards it, or actually he's walking, he sees the Sentinels coming and he, and he kind of runs off from the rest of the group and he's grabbed by this, uh, by these tendrils that, that, that whip around him and pull him in. And as we'll find out that, uh, that character is the, the, the horseman mutant called Abyss. And, uh, as, as we cut off, uh, as, as we cut back, we see, uh, we see, the humans, you know, waiting for the the sentinels to come. They land, and uh, all of a sudden, they they realize that there are mutants present, um, and they they start to attack. And uh, Dazzler is able to distract them by conjuring up hard light constructs of uh, Jean Grey and and Wolverine. And the sentinel is even his program is is even confused because if they're in England, like they've been cataloged to be, where they just came from. Um, how could they be here? And so while it's trying to figure out what's going on, uh, Dazzler's able to kind of hit it again with some sort of uh, laser beam or, or laser effect. It it stuns the Sentinel. Pietro's able to run up a, 
put put the disc in, and so they think they finally got the upper hand, and the Sentinels will leave them be while um, while while they're they're able to kind of assist the humans in getting evacuated and fight off any of Apocalypse's forces that might come in as reinforcements. So their plan didn't go exactly like they thought, but uh, but the end result, at least for what they believe, is is the same. Right. Until <laughs> um, <laughs> Iceman starts to form up like this big ice wall barrier to kind of protect everybody, um, and the Sentinel lashes out and uh, blasts him into little tiny pieces. And it, it, it's kind of a really cool panel, too, because it, they really make the Sentinels... Um, have almost like human-like faces. I mean, normally when we see sentinels, they kind of have a slightly humanoid appearance, but they're always drawn to be mechanical. Like you don't a lot of times see them the, the mouths open or yelling, um, and and it's kind of interesting that we see this sentinel here, where it, I mean, it's got full facial features. I mean, we even see like teeth and a tongue, and um, and it you know again, its mouth wide open with the red eyes. It just it's just a really kind of eerie, cool looking looking panel. And speaking of the sound effects, I love how the Chirac is built into the same perspective yes. as the laser. It's kind of a cool effect. Yep, yep, yep. So the X-Men watch on as Bobby has been blown to bits. Um, and Exodus pr- pretty much says, you know, not a big deal. He'll be able to pull himself together again, which reiterates to everyone, you know, just how powerful this version of Iceman is, which is, is pretty cool. And then no it, pun intended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No pun intended. Um, so w- the X-Men here are um, confronted by what we'll, we'll come to know as the Brotherhood of Mutants, this, this gathering of uh, almost looks like the six-pack from, uh, from, the, from the X-Force uh, you know, days, these, these creatures uh, here that, that kind of gathered up, especially with Copycat being uh, in, on, in, in on the mix. Uh, and then the one that looks like a Mandalorian up top there. Uh, and the big white guy's Wendigo, right? Uh I don't think that's Wendigo. That almost looks like um there was a guy that was a part of the six pack in X Force that was red. He looked exactly like this, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Grizzly. Grizzly. Yes. It looks like Grizzly, except he's white instead of instead of red. So I'm not sure if that's who the, his counterpart is in this universe or not. I don't think they ever actually give most of these these guys names, um, other than Copycat. Um, but we we find out that what happened was is uh, that that this this one uh, this character here, uh, a part of the part of the Brotherhood, has um, reprogrammed their data disk so that uh, they are protected and the X Men are not. So which explains why Bobby was blasted out of the sky. And uh, so the rest of them are, are prepared to um, be attacked by this group of uh, Apocalypse's forces. And so ends issue one. Heck of a way to test your code. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, if this doesn't work, we're going to get blasted into oblivion, okay? Make sure all your code's right. So... Again, I thought this was a pretty cool cover. I don't like this one as much as I did uh, issue one, but it kind of it's very fitting, right? I mean, this this issue has a lot to do with Abyss, uh, Abyss, other than kind of being this mutant that can unfurl himself like a like into ribbon, also brings sucks 
it, his victims or his his uh, his enemies into this other dimension. And uh, so, you know, the whole thing is kind of all about skewed perspective and disorientation and things like that. And so one of the things I, I do like about this cover is the fact that it kind of accentuates that uh, that fact where we see that um, that Quicksilver is 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 grabbed up by some of these tendrils and he's he's kind of, um, you know, sideways and screaming and then we see storm where she's trying to fight it too. And she's, you know, at a weird angle and abyss is kind of like all around the whole top of the cover. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of wacky, but it, it definitely fits the, uh, fits the bill. And I do like the way that abyss is drawn throughout. I mean, it's a really cool, um, design to him. It's gotta be a pain in the neck to draw and not have it look ridiculous, but it looks really cool. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of like AOA cloak. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? He's kind of got similar powers to cloak. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And he's kind of an interesting character. I forget where it comes out. Maybe it's either in Chronicles or 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 one of the other books, but he's actually Mystique's son. Oh, yeah, and and Nightcrawler doesn't realize that uh that they are brothers, but but they are de- they are definitely related. So kind of kind of freaky and creepy for sure. But it definitely fits with the whole, you know, being able to it's like the extreme version of being able to to change forms where you're, you know, literally unraveling yourself to change forms and have another dimension yeah. connected there too. So. Yeah. Which kind of, I guess in a way kind of fits in with the whole Nightcrawler thing. I don't, I don't know if Azazel or I, at this point they really didn't even talk about who the father was necessarily, but, um, but I guess if Azazel was the father, you know, being able to, you know, that Nightcrawler, when he teleports, he technically goes into another dimension and then pops back out. Uh, that, that again, that, that kind of, similarness to it uh definitely fits uh so again we start issue two this one is is kind of interesting this first page here we get this is almost like bachalo art and and correct me if i'm wrong i mean what do you you do what do you guys think of 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 looking at it um i guess i could see some of that i mean i'm not particularly good with remembering artist specific styles uh from from the 90s but uh i could see a little bit of it i guess it is kind of interesting to see Andy Kubert's art then as opposed to Andy Kubert's art now. Yeah. You know what I mean? When he's, I think because he was younger then, he was trying to adhere to like the house style that pretty much was set by guys like Chris Bacello and, uh, you know, and Jim Lee before him and things like that. So, I mean, to look at this now and to be influenced, it's obvious the influences on his stuff, like you're saying, it does look very much like a, a Chris Bacello page, especially with the use of shadow and everything. The heavy, uh, the heavy inks you know the heavy inks and then the negative inks like you know where there's a lot of black we get these heavy white lines that that kind of act as the as the the ink lines right it's it's just interesting to see how far he's evolved into his own style yeah you know what i mean as opposed to emulating others yeah definitely i mean especially his modern stuff his modern stuff is is a lot more i hate to use the word sketchy because that sounds kind of negative but it's there's a lot of like his line is a lot looser. You know, it's not it's not a really tight line with where his inker doesn't isn't usually very heavy on him. His lines are very thin, and he and he just has again you know very distinctive style at least in, in my opinion. And we see it it kind of comes and goes a little bit you know in, in in his early stuff, but it's very very prominent in in his more modern work. Um, and his brother has a very Adam has a has a kind of similar style. The two of them, I mean, obviously, you know, being the sons of Joe Kubert and um, you know, kind of coming up together, they they do have a somewhat similar style for sure. So issue two, uh, we see that uh, Jeremy, the kid that we saw from uh, the previous issue, is being held by Abyss. 
Um, and again, we get more of um, this repetition of what came in, in the previous issue, um, you know, but we, we don't really need to get into too much of that. And we see that the kid is just really scared and Abyss just keeps messing with him. He's, you know, wrapping his tendrils around him and, and pulling him in. And he tells the kid, you know, this is what I feed in. And it's really kind of this weird uh, sound effect. We get this like frip, 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 you know, almost kind of like a a little more, you know, not, not kind of like a, I guess kind of like a whipping sound, but, but a little more um, like harsh, I would say. Uh, then we cut over to the to the to the credits page, which is this full page, pretty much a full page splash. We get um, a little panel on the top, uh, and and the 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 splash page kind of bleeds over the top of the business head, kind of bleeds over into that panel that continues from the previous page. Um, but it's really really kind of well done and pretty creepy that this kid is is kind of reaching out and he's crying and he's he's trying to grab on to to anything to help get him out. And Abyss is just is just completely engulfed this kid. I would love to see a CGI rendered version of Abyss to see how they would do that in a film. Again, I keep going back to his design, but it's just such a cool idea. I'd love to see it in motion. Yeah, it's funny. He was a character, and and the animation style wasn't that great, but he was a character in the um, X-Men Legends video game for the original Xbox. Um, He was was one of the villains that you fought, and, and it was a pretty crude animation at the time but yeah like a modern i see i get what you're saying jordan even like a modern like fighting game or something like that where they could they could you know make them a little more fully visualized yeah exactly so we see that uh, uh, again abyss is um you got this kid so we cut back pretty much to where we left off in in the previous issue with um this this brotherhood of mutants um squaring off against the x-men ready to fight and the fight commences, and you know Dazzler is is telling Pietro, you know, hey, that the Brotherhood controls the Sentinels. You know, there's no way we can stop them. And you know, Pietro is just acting like the leader and saying, you know, maybe not, but you know, we're going to protect these humans the best we can. Uh, and so they, they, you know, they basically um, take, you know, just start by taking the fight to them. And at that instance, uh, that Pietro really takes off and is and is ready to let loose. He turns around and sees what he thinks is his uh, dead sister, which we find, thanks to the footnote, um, we got more detail um, on that in X-Men Chronicles number one, which is, again, the, the kind of ancillary series to uh, X-Men Unlimited that was going on at the time. It was a quarterly series. So for the Age of Apocalypse, we actually got two uh, issues of that. So because it spanned uh, the four-month time frame, we got one at the beginning and then one at the end. And, of course, we find out that it was not, in fact, Wanda, but it is um, Copycat, who has taken Wanda's form to, to specifically distract him and uh, catch him off guard, um, which at, at, at that point, uh, she pulls out a knife and is ready to stab him. And we get this really cool kind of uh, half-page splash, I guess, at the bottom of Dazzler with um, her finger pointing out, and uh, we find that she basically turned... Uh, used her powers to create a laser beam that uh, disintegrated the knife. That is some serious hair. Indeed. Too. It, you know, this, this, um, this pose and everything and the framing reminds me a lot of the whole Kitty Pride, um, you know, Professor Xavier is a jerk, you know, thing. It just has that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's framed the same way, except it's, it's Dazzler, and uh, she's drawn very uh, suggestively, let's say. So then we find that uh, the, the Brotherhood is not very happy with the fact that... Uh, the X-Men have done this to to stop them from killing 
Pietro, and uh, they start to reprogram the Sentinels and command them to attack. Um, Dazzler is hit, Pietro is down, and uh, Exodus is not very happy about that. I mean, obviously you could tell that the two of them, uh, or at least at least Exodus has some feelings towards, uh, towards Dazzler, and uh, he's none too happy. Comes to her side, and he's ready to go, to go after the Brotherhood. The Sentinels, it's, we get this cool kind of perspective shot. It's almost like a Terminator um, effect where he, we're seeing what, what the Sentinel is seeing, and um, he's map, mapping out trajectories and targets and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the next panel, we get Storm, who comes in uh, with a, with a you know, bunch of Sentinels behind her, and she just lets loose her, um, her, magne- her, uh, her powers, which creates this uh, electrical pulse to kind of uh, distract the Sentinels for a few minutes and, and allow the team to get, to get a bit of a breather and regroup. So the team kind of fills Storm in as to what's going on because obviously she she had left to go assist with the destruction of that defense tower, and so now she's back. And uh, just as they're they're again they're trying to regroup and figure out what's going on, the Sentinels are still a bit on the fritz. In comes Banshee. You know he he's kind of lamenting about how he came back into the fold, and um, you know that Magneto needed him and asked him to rejoin, and um, so he. Uh, he obliged. This is also where Bobby Drake forms himself back out of nothing. And they kind of don't even talk about it. It's just like, you know, one panel is like, oh, I'm yeah, back, yeah, you know? yeah. I guess they just uh, took it so much for granted, it wasn't even worth uh, worth worrying about. They, they knew it was going to happen at some point. Even in the AOA, uh, poor Bobby Drake gets no respect. He is the Rodney Dangerfield of mutants. <laughs> So again, we see Banshee. Uh, he's he's going off to to rescue this 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 kid. He comes across the ship, which is the the ship that brought the Brotherhood to Maine, and he sees this Cardinal Madri, who I guess is the leader of this this Madri group, and he's dead, and he's wondering who it was. And uh, at that exact moment, out comes Abyss. And the one thing about the way Nietzsche writes Abyss, he's very. I mean, this is he's almost like a Bond villain, you know where. You know, when he gets uh, screen time, he just starts chewing up scenery with, you know, uh, exposition and, you know, how great he is and everything he's going to do and everybody else's plans um, and just kind of blathers on uh, for, for most of the page. So Abyss and uh, Banshee start to fight and he sees that the kid is, is still stuck inside him in this other dimension and he starts to to reach out and he tells Banshee, he's you know, he's he. He says, I don't, you know, I don't, the kid is not who I want. I want the son of Magneto. And by that, he means uh, Quicksilver. And uh, so he's, he basically needs to go send the message to Pietro that um, if he doesn't come back, this kid is, is going to die. And so at that moment, um, Banshee takes off um, and uh, comes back to the group and realizes that uh, there's a lot of dead humans around. Uh, the team is kind of... Uh, uh, you know, get, his, his his team is trying to kind of get his bearings, and he comes up to regroup. The other thing that we that was interesting that we found out was that Abyss became a horseman by killing Bastion, and I don't believe at this point Bastion uh, was a villain in in the X Men universe proper. I I believe he came in uh, slightly after the AOA when they had that Operation Zero Tolerance. Um, and we find out that he was he was supposed to be this this uh, character that was going after mutants, and then it turns out he was like um, melded with uh, Nimrod technology, and um, you know, kind of like this this crazy 
a meld of man and machine uh, going on. Uh, but I think this is the first mention of uh, that we get of of Bastion here in uh, in this book. Banshee says, "Hey, he's held a, a, a child hostage," and then we it looks like Pietro, and he says, "A child where?" And I, it almost looks like maybe they got the art or the panels wrong because that definitely looks like Banshee that's that's speaking that line and not Pietro. I mean, the hair not only is it the wrong color, which I guess you could attribute to lighting if you wanted. But it's the wrong, it doesn't even look right. So I don't know if this was just some kind of mistake that they, they just didn't catch or what. It could just be a coloring mix-up. I mean, if they would colored it white, it could have passed for Pietro. He's also leaning over, um, I forget the one character's name here, but the, the, the character who's using this kind of golden-colored power and, the pa- and you know, the, a bigger panel above it, so it's possible that it's just the lighting from that power. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, it it just looked odd because even like the texture, it looked like the hair is kind of curly, as like straight back. It it just kind of took me as just something I noticed, I guess, when I was reading it. Yeah, it certainly is weird though. So Banshee says, you know, they're they're three kilometers northeast. Uh, storm is going to go with, and this is kind of where we have this, uh, you know, very the the very heartfelt moment between Quicksilver and Storm, and and it come becomes clear here that the two of them are are, are definitely. Uh, you know, have something going on that they have definitely have feelings for each other. Um, and, and storm is, is really just trying to look out for him and make sure he doesn't rush in and, uh, and get himself killed because he knows he has a soft spot when it comes to, to, to kids. And she even says, you know, you, you remember your far, your father's cardinal rule never face an enemy unknown. And at that point, the rest of them agree with, with storm that he should not go alone. Quicksilver gives in and the two of them take off to go find Abyss and this and this child. So meanwhile, it, it looks like Exodus has been working on the Sentinels, and he says, you know, that Storm's static charge helped more than we thought. So between you know Banshee's harmonics and uh, the fried circuitry from Storm, they should be able to undo the Brotherhood's damage and uh, get the Sentinels back on track. So while while Storm and, and Quicksilver are off doing their thing. Uh, the rest of them are going to be back to try and uh, assist out with the uh, with the, with the Sentinels. So Storm and Banshee arrive back uh, at the at the ship and um, to go after after the kid. Uh, Storm kind of uh, charges in first and is able to get a hold of them. At which point uh, Abyss uh, tries to to trap both of them, um, and in comes Pietro. And it's kind of cool because he, we see him using his like speed powers where uh, Abyss is trying to get a hold of him, and um, and Pietro is is using his powers to either um, to 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 kind of pick up all of the, the the pieces that are are kind of spinning around and, and grab hold of him to to get the upper hand. Which is cool because normally when we see Quicksilver in action, I and mean, granted I, I don't I'm not the X Men guy here, so I haven't seen as much as you have, but it always seems to be them just focusing on his ability to run fast and not his ability to be quickly. Yeah, that's it, it's more of a flash thing, but you're right. I mean, most of the time when they show him, it's always him moving, you know, quickly, running quickly and not and and, the, and you're right. They don't focus as much on his ability to to move his other extremities at at that speed or, you know, to think, you know, quickly and and all that kind of stuff. So he's able to kind of grab hold of him. Storm is able to to shoot some lightning to kind of um hopefully stun him. And, um, you know, Storm says, you know, we're not getting anywhere. There's no, he has no substance. You know, that they're not going to get the upper hand. You know, at that, that kind of angers Abyss. Um, he starts to, to kind of lash out even more. And 
Pietro comes running at him and just whacks him right in the face. And uh, and it's kind of cool because once he hits him, he falls back, and you can see his body is kind of uh, you know unraveled from from head to toe. So that's kind of a kind of a cool effect, like he's a, like a cold spring that uh, that that's been stretched out. He's a slinky falling <laughs> down the stairs. And this is my favorite uh, automatopoeia sound effect: sleuth pup. <laughs> Wait, where do you see that? On the bottom left there. On the bottom left there, as he punches him, you frip, 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 sleuth pup. Right when he says, into the your depths of your own black and black, unfortunately, you stare directly into the depths oh, of your own black Oh, oh next, the next soul. page, yes. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you just said he had punched him in the face and stuff. Yeah. It's sleuth pup. So, <laughs> sleuth pup. Blip. <laughs> McGruff the crime dog's new friends. <laughs> <laughs> Together, they'll take a bite out of crime. I'll get a trench coat. And this is kind of a cool effect, you know, as as uh, as Pietro tries to get a hold of him and, um, you know, is moving very fast and is kind of, um, I wasn't quite sure exactly what he was doing here. And I kind of took it as he, Abyss kind of opened up his portal and Quicksilver used his, his speed to just kind of throw the pieces back into the portal after himself. Um, so he basically ended up sucking himself into himself. Well, he says on the next page, you know, he just, he, he didn't know that would work because he was lucky. He just wanted to punch his face in. So that kind of was like a, a side effect of what, you know, him trying to punch his face in and like sucking into himself, like that imploding. Yeah. That's yeah. why I took it from him. But anyway, it's kind of cool that they were, they were able to dispatch him. And at this point, I mean, he's, he's gone and that, that's, that's pretty much the way it is. So... You know the the team gets a victory here. They're able to 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 save little Jeremy to take him back uh, to the rest of the chi- of the team. And and Storm says, you know, basically that you know uh, Pietro Maximoff Lanesheer wins the day by letting his emotions get the best of him. And and Storm says there is perhaps there is hope for you yet. So again, the you know more of them uh, getting closer to each other. And then we see on the next panel that uh, you know the Sentinels are boarding these. Uh, pods or, or escape craft or whatever you want. And it's kind of cool because then the Sentinels, it looks like they put them on their back and they take off to fly away. And it's just a really, I really like this panel where it's it's kind of minimalist. It's especially the, the look of the Sentinels where they're kind of almost like ghostly figures taking these uh, refugees away. Um, so we get, you know, really clear defined uh, Storm and Quicksilver holding hands in the foreground. Um, and then we get, like I said, this kind of ghostly image of these of these Sentinels taken off in the background. I just, I just thought it really worked well. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, the Force Ghosts there in the background. But yeah. I, I do like that also, the design choice of them almost being the 767s to the space shuttle. Yeah, yeah. Of, of you know, strapping it on the back. And, and it's kind of a cool idea. So then we cut to on the next page. We see the family is, is fully reunited. The other thing I like is, is is this thing with Dazzler, where she's able to create these holographic projections. I guess she's she's beaming light over great distance um, and, and somehow able to... I don't know if she's creating some kind of vibration or the or her 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 voice frequency is carrying over, but it's kind of a cool effect. And again, one of those things that I've never seen her do in the six one six, you know, before this or since then. Uh, so it's kind of cool the way you know we've talked about before that most of these characters, either by circumstance or by genetic meddling, have uh, seriously amped up their powers or refined them to to a great degree. They're extreme, yeah. man. <laughs> 
So and she kind of re- uh, reiterates, you know, how they were able to kind of make this work, and I thought this was cool. And uh, she says, we reprogrammed the Sentinels, caught them in a logic uh, bind. Secondary programming, hunt mutants. Primary programming, prevent humans from coming to harm. So one conflicted with two, but one was more important. So they actually asked us if we could, if we would help them. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was kind of cool that they, uh, you know, they just basically uh, use their own logic against them as opposed to, uh, you know, masking themselves genetically. So then on the next page, we kind of get this, uh, it's almost like an epilogue at, at this point. We kind of got a prologue in the beginning, but it's, it's not clear, it's not specifically labeled as an epilogue. But we're, we're cut back to New York into Apocalypse's uh, chambers, uh, and we see that, that uh, Karma is being held, and she was, she was captured in X-Men Alpha, she was taken from, uh, from, from war and she knows a lot of his, his secrets. We get an appearance of, uh, by Sebastian Shaw. So he's kind of, uh, overseeing, overseeing this, uh, this interrogation. And I love the very nineties of it of when he's introduced, it has to be, isn't that right? Sebastian yeah. Shaw, not Mr. Shaw or Sebastian or. He's in silhouette in the panel yeah. before. So it's like a big dramatic reveal. Yeah. So again, then you know we kind of we kind of get reiterated where karma came from, and you know that she's given up this information from being mind probed, and uh, you know again Shaw is, is kind of overseeing this uh, uh, this interrogation, and they're kind of ready uh, to to take it up to the next level to have the Shadow King come in uh, and and carry this further. And he says, you know, we'll get the answers you want, but you'll be left with this, you know, this mindless husk. And, and Karma's really freaked out about the fact that the Shadow King uh, is, is, or the Shadow Thief is, is, going, to, is going to come in and, and be able to do this. And uh, at that moment, in, in walks Apocalypse, and he says, you know, I grow wary of this game. You know, he knows where Magneto is. It's in, you know, the former home of Charles Xavier. Basically, he's going to take care of this. And uh, he, as, as issue two ends, he says, we shall see who is truly fit enough to survive. So very, again, a very Apocalypse thing. My cape is even bigger than Magneto's <laughs> in both of my fists. Yes. I too can rock the giant shoulder pads. All right, issue three. Getting to the tail end here. This is probably my least favorite cover of all. This is a very, it's just so over the top. Um, the mag, the mag, the perspective of Magneto is kind of cool, the way he's rendered. Um, but this bit with Apocalypse and the purples and the blues and the yellows, it's just, again, like we talked, so garish. And it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's very... Uh, uh, you know, almost like a mustache twirling, uh, you know, villain wearing black from an old Western or something like that. How can anyone know. crouch like that at all? Mm-hmm. It's like a Spider-Man crouch. It's crazy. And like, and because Magneto is closer, I guess, to the yeah. camera, it looks like he's much bigger. Like it's like a tiny, tiny, like a half-size apocalypse jumping on his chest. Yeah, uh, and it's I, just, like I, I said, the I other three, like I... I, I I like quite a bit. I mean, again, especially like I said, one, but uh, but this one just it just wasn't doing it for me. So issue three is called "Parents of the Atom," and we start off by getting this. Uh, I like how they they brought in the uh, the tombstone again of of Xavier, like we saw on the the cover of I guess it was the last uh, Legion Quest issue that had uh, that had David around the the headstone, which is kind of cool. And uh, we see that it's it's Magneto um, over the the grave of Xavier, and again he's kind of 
reiterating what happened to Charles and, you know, what he's been trying to do and that Magneto's trying to conquer and, you know, all that stuff. And again, and again with the big cape and the, and the holding it in your fist kind of thing. So as we, we kind of uh, move away from, uh, from Magneto as he's at the grave, we start to see these crosshairs and he takes his helmet off and looks directly at, at the, the crosshairs and we see that it's Bishop and, uh, and, you know, he basically says, look, we don't have time to reminisce. You know, we're out here in the open. There's been a perimeter breach. Somebody's about to attack us. You know, we need to get going. And this was the other thing that was really weird about this is why he's pointing the gun at Magneto. I'm not sure why, other than maybe to get his attention. Um, and then Magneto goes in this tirade about allowing him to carry a weapon. And, you know, he starts to disassemble the weapon. Then he reassembles the weapon. Uh, and then, you know, kind of like in a typical... Uh, 80s action movie you know he he uh, you know we think that he's firing at the at the good guy and it turns out he's really firing at the bad guy right behind him so there are a ton of weird things about this page a magneto's hair turns into a mullet all of a sudden and then goes back in the next panel he disassembles the gun reassembles the gun he like yells at him then tells him it's, it's just a very strange page and the gun <laughs> looks like a spaceship yeah where does the projectile beam come out of that actually yeah i don't know it's just very it's just very bizarre looking i mean it just i don't know if it's just a weird perspective thing we're getting or what but it just like i said that whole exchange just i i read it a couple times and i just i was like what what is why i don't understand (laughs) so we just move on and uh we see that the team is surrounded by a bunch of of infinites and uh Magneto recognizes Vanisher, and again, this version of Vanisher, very different than the 616 Vanisher uh, at this point, because he's got this crazy uh, armor on, he's got this weird uh, red thing over his helmet with these tubes coming out of the back, and he's got this purple mist stuff that that kind of uh, is following him around, it's just very, this, this, this Vanisher obviously has been jacked with genetically. The other thing uh, that was cool about this is Magneto makes a point of saying it has been a long time, a long, long time since we last clashed. And again, Vanisher was an, a very early X-Men villain who he's kind of one of those guys that occasionally he'll just he's another one that just kind of pops in and pops out. Um, most recently, uh, he was involved in the Kyle and Yost version of X-Force that uh, it was the version before the, the latest uh, Remender Uncanny X-Force. Uh, and Kyle and Yost used him really, really well. He had these crazy tattoos. He was kind of this extreme version uh, of his prior self. And uh, he was kind of the reluctant hero uh, on the X-Force team and, and basically teleported them around. Um, and it was really uh, probably the best use of that character ever. I mean, even even more so than in this book, which I think until this point had probably been the coolest use of Vanish, uh, Vanisher ever. Uh, so at, th- at this point, uh, Vanisher... Uh, disappears and leaves uh, Magneto and Bishop to fight the Infinites. Um, Magneto gets really pissed at this point and just uh, in in this crazy pose of him kind of leaning forward and raising his arms up uh, disassembles uh, 90% of these Infinites that he has around him. At that point, they think they've got the upper hand. Um, and then there's another uh, great, what is this, a, 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 Kash, a Kash Karam or Kash... Keshakam, uh, a huge, a huge explosion happens, um, and we see that Bishop is kind of stunned, and we see that uh, that Apocalypse makes his entry, 
uh, grabs Magneto by the hair uh, and is and is about ready to, to go to town on him. And Bishop has pupils for maybe the only time in the entire book. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't have his red eye, so it's just kind of weird. This looks like a WWF wrestling hold. Yeah, he has a Magneto <laughs> hair, kind of you know, like that. Like a double suplex or something. I don't know what they're called, but yeah, it's just kind of weird. Like where his right leg is in relation. Like the, there's some weird anatomy going on there for sure. Um, he's he's twisted in a way that just doesn't seem quite natural. But at that moment, when Apocalypse thinks he's going to have the upper hand, uh, Bishop blasts uh, Apocalypse back because, as we know, Bishop's power is to absorb kinetic energy and then to uh, rechannel it back. Which apparently makes Apocalypse's hand grow about three times its normal size. Yeah. <laughs> because, and then even bigger. I mean, in the next panel, it's big. But on the next pa- page, it is huge. It is yeah. just... I can't even figure out what's supposed to be... I mean, I can figure out what's supposed to be going on, but I can't figure out how any perspective could possibly make that even slightly work. Well... Part of Apocalypse's power is mass transformation, so he can actually make himself or parts of his body uh, bigger, smaller, stretch. He's almost oh, kind of. Like, I did not know that actually. Yeah, it's it, it's almost kind of like uh, Mister Fantastic, but not quite as um, stringy. I, I guess I would say. So yeah, Apocalypse has has some some crazy crazy powers for sure, and he's kind of one of those guys that almost like they invent stuff as they need to to for to suit the purpose of the story sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we see that Apocalypse recognizes Bishop as the mutant that showed up in Seattle that helped rescue the X-Men, um, and he starts to go after him. Bishop tries to go for his, the, the gun that he had, and Apocalypse clamps down on his hand. And at that point, like you said, Jordan, he he um, has this gorilla arm that comes up and is able to just slam down on Bishop and just keep after him and keep after him and keep after him. Um, at this point, it's kind of bought Magneto enough time where he's starting to recover, starts to go after to go after Apocalypse, and and at this point, this is when Apocalypse really starts to increase his mass and size, and and completely towers over Magneto. You know, Magneto looks like a like a like a rag doll compared to Apocalypse at this point. Uh, Magneto th- still thinks though he has the upper hand. He's got this plasma rifle, and he's gonna you know the the very sci-fi trope thing and set it on overload so it explodes and takes everybody out with them um, but Apocalypse basically causes bluff and says that's fine you'll be dead and Bishop will be too but do you really think it's going to kill me and if what if it doesn't um, you know what's going to become of your son Vanisher is down in the tunnels looking for him as we speak um, and at that moment uh, Magneto realizes that he's not going to in fact follow through on the on the promise and backs down at which point, uh, Apocalypse again starts to to wail on him some more and knocks him out cold. Have we ever, at any point in any X Men series before this, seen uh, Magneto and Apocalypse fight? We kind of did. We kind of got a glimpse of this. I think it, maybe it was Astonishing. Um, in the beginning of Astonishing, we saw where um, Magneto was taken. I, I think. I think we saw the. Because we see at one point where um, the Astonishing crew shows up after after all this has happened. And I'm pretty sure that we saw that in uh, back in Astonishing from, from their perspective, that we've kind of got a little bit of overlap here. Gotcha. I mean, granted, like I've said many times before, I'm not really the X-Men guy, but it, it does occur to me when reading this fight that it's not often I actually see Apocalypse fighting somebody. True, 
True. Not, and, you know, I all the time see him lording over people, monologuing, etc. But actually getting in a throwdown, that's rare. Back, you know, when he first came on the scene, like in back in, in X Factor number six, when he first came came about, you, you know, he definitely um, w- was around then. But and, and, and was a lot more active. But, yeah, since then, uh, you know, like you said, it's it's been it's been more of him kind of masterminding behind the scenes and, and doing things that way. Uh, the other thing that Apocalypse uh, kind of conveys back to Magneto was um, he said years ago when you forced my magnificent celestial ship to crash from the skies, he said you came close to defeating me. Again, this kind of has a parallel to the 616. Uh, Apocalypse for a long time was home in this celestial ship, and it was actually called Ship. Um, and when the X-Men defeated him after uh, Fall of the Mutants, uh, they were kind of branded as heroes for, for beating him back. And for a while, X, the ship actually landed in New York and was vertical. It was like this big, huge tower. And the X-Men actually, uh, or the, the X-Factor actually used that as their headquarters uh, for quite some time when they were trying to kind of build back mutants um, and use them. So it kind of, again, there was kind of that parallel here between, you know, what happened here in the 616. It's just instead of it being X-Factor, which was the original X-Men at this point, going against him in that scuffle, it was it was Magneto. Gotcha. But he was still defeated. So, of course, we cut to the uh, Morlock tunnels and we see Nanny with uh, Charles inside of, of her in this, this crazy bubble thing. The, the one thing that I thought was kind of bizarre about this was uh, Charles looked, uh, he would have to be small like an infant to fit inside of Nanny at this point. And as we see later on, he's maybe like five or maybe four or five years old. Um, definitely a lot bigger than, than the way they're showing him here. So I thought that was just kind of like a weird perspective thing. It's a, uh, what do you call it, a zero space bag, an infinite space bag like you get in uh, RPGs. Yeah. It's it's like it's the TARDIS of, uh, of uh, robots. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. It's funny, though, because I remember the same nanny bot from, I think, X-Men maybe 113, 114, when uh, the X-Men confronted Magneto in his base. It was one of the early Claremont Burn issues. And uh, all of the X-Men were nullified by having their minds reduced to when they were infants and children. And Nanny took care of them. And So I think that's a really cool callback to the you know, yeah, old yeah, X-Men sure. history to have her in this. Yeah. But we see that Vanisher has definitely caught up to Nanny. You know, she wants the, the baby. She wants the boy. And um, I love this. Nanny says that uh, um, placing my charge in jeopardy is not within my operational pre- parameters. But protecting Charles Lanchier most obviously is. And then it's kind of this really cool, almost like a RoboCop moment or something like that, where all these, these crazy guns come out of, of this unassuming robot. And uh, I love the kid has this huge grin on his face as he's looking out, knowing what's coming. And obviously, uh, poor Vanisher is going to get smacked. Yeah, Charles has a womb with a view there for sure. Oh, there it is. <laughs> So we cut back to outside. Uh, the The infinites are destroyed. Some time has passed, and the rest of the the X Men return uh, from their mission in the Northeast. They see that you know the, everything's everything's kind of in disarray. Exodus picks up uh, Magneto's helmet and caresses it in a very uh, it's a very strange uh, <laughs> image that we get of Exodus, but um, but he picks that up, and they're they're just trying to piece together exactly what's uh, what's going on, and. Uh, 
Pietro says, you know, just be, you know, rest assured, you know, my father's alive. I'm, I'm certain I, you know, I have, basically I have to be. Um, and at that moment we see that, uh, Bobby is able to find, was able to find Vanisher or find what was left of Vanisher who at this point is a, uh, is nothing but a dead body. And, um, uh, Iceman says, uh, you know, the, you know, don't say dead men can't tell any tales cause the Vanisher here has plenty to say. So they see based on the types of burns that he has that, um, that he was you know, taken out by Nanny's defensive systems. And uh, at that point, Pietro tells Iceman to find Rogue, tell her what's going on, tell Storm and Banshee to stay there, and uh, that you know Rogue and the others should should begin arriving soon. And then he tells him, you know, be careful of uh, how you tell her what happened, because uh, she's probably not likely to uh, to take it very kindly. So Pietro, at this point, uh, is going to talk to the man who has all the answers and uh, all the contacts and all the information. And uh, as we cut back to Manhattan again. We see that uh, there's a you know everything pretty much except uh, Apocalypse's facility is is just completely trashed, and uh, and things are going bad. And we see that Angel uh, is coming back to his you know what's left of his club, and you know he he sees his world crumbling around him. I mean, basically Warren just wanted to have his place where he could play both sides against the middle, um, you know, live in peace, kind of have his cake and eat it too. Um, and he realizes that he's pretty much sold his soul, and not in a good way, to, to have the life that he had, and, and there's not much left of it. Um, and I will say this this panel we get where when we see Angel flying down, and we get this center panel where he's walking down the steps. And just the, the, this is an example of just, I think the coloring was spectacular, and, and just the, the way it's rendered. Particularly oh, the on wings the wings. Are fantastic, yeah. I mean, just really, really nice. And, and you know, him kind of taking that, you know, the shirt off of him and, um, you know, walking down. And, and, again, just the just the coloring and everything. I just, I really, really, really like that panel. Uh, so, of course, just as he's kind of uh, getting his bearings out, we see that uh, Quicksilver has come in and uh, smacked him up pretty good. You know, the two of them kind of go back and forth. And uh, Pietro says, you know, my father's been kidnapped, you know, along with a newfound ally of the X-Men, which, of course, he's he's referring to Bishop. Um, at this point, uh, the gun that uh, that, that uh, Angel has handy, uh, Pietro is able to take apart and put in pieces, and uh, you know demands to to know what he knows. And uh, again, like we said, or like I said, that uh, Angel's kind of seeing the error of his ways, so to speak, and uh, so he's basically saying, "Look, I'll give you your information for free." I, I you know, and and tells him what's going on that uh, that uh, you know Bishop and Magneto were taken down by Apocalypse. You know, he knows that, you know, now is the time when the final moves will be made. And he tells, um, he says, Bishop has been taken to the Tabernacle of the Madri in Quebec. And that uh, Magneto is being held in Apocalypse's Citadel. Uh, so now Pietro's kind of in this weird spot where he doesn't know what to do. You know, does he go after Magneto and free him? Or does he go after Bishop, who Magneto was very convinced had a pivotal role to play in either getting the world back the way it should be or furthering the, the, their plans. And so he uh, he's he's forced to kind of make a choice. So then we cut to Quebec, or Quebec, I guess, it, as it is pronounced. And we see that uh, that Bishop is being uh, tortured by these Madri. And it's kind of cool. They're all, we kind of get a better look at them now, where they all, they're all bald-headed, um, and they pretty much are like a hive mind at this point. They're all repeating what the you know, the, the apocalypse mantra of may the fittest survive. And they even use them. Their, their speaking parts are put in a different font. It's almost like this very, uh, 
um, you know, almost like they would, you know, use use for Thor, like uh, like Asgardian or or godly or you know whatever. Almost like they're they're chanting as opposed to speaking. Uh, so we see again that uh, Bishop is being tortured, and uh, they decide to have the Shadow King come and enter his mind to tell them exactly what they need to know. And once he does that, we get this really cool panel of the shadow king and his his mouth opening and and we see the the history of of what bishop knows uh through the panels you know that are that that make up like the inside of his mouth so it's it's really kind of cool that we you know see um you know Xavier you know in the one panel it looks like Xavier you know being killed and then we see the original student uh you know students and bishop and Xavier you know it's just it really cool you know kind of all done in red um and at the bottom uh, we see that it's all kind of like glass. It's all breaking to show that it's, you know it's it's a it's a reality that didn't that didn't come to be, and uh, he keeps trying to probe further to get to the truth because um, at this point the Shadow King is really cu- curious as to if um, if this is true. Was there the, really this other reality? Could could it could it be you know what's going on? This page just uh, screams like Bill Sienkiewicz to me. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? With like all the textures of the broken glass and everything, it just seems very patterned after his style. I like it too. Yeah. It also reminds me a lot of what Gabe Rodriguez does over in Lock and Key with the head key, but a very different, but it's just a, a different representation of a similar idea, and they're both pretty cool. And yeah, like you're saying, it's it's shattering like the Macron crystal, so yeah, um, it kind of gets that whole theme exactly, in there too. Exactly, exactly. So the, the Madri are, at this point, a little... Uh, confused because the essence of the Shadow King has been purged. They're they're really confused as to as to how that's possible. That's you know something that never never has happened before. And uh, at this point, we thought that Abyss was gone for good. Out he comes to um, to assist in the torture of uh, of of poor Bishop. And we see that his uh, his motivation is that he definitely does not want to see the end of this age to come. Uh, that you know he's not going to allow Bishop to, um, to 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 remove this reality that they that they know. So we cut back at this point to the remains of the Xavier estate. As Pietro comes back, he's hoping that Rogue and the others have come back. Uh, he sees that that Banshee and Storm are there. Um, they tell him that you know know that Rogue and 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 the rest of them have not come back yet. Dazzler and Exodus are still looking for. Uh, for Nanny and for Charles, but they haven't found him yet. Um, but but they you know they, they'll find him. So Pietro relays to the team that they leave immediately for Quebec to rescue Bishop. Banshee kind of questions that you know what about Magneto and and Pietro has come to the realization that uh, you know that Magneto would have th- thought Bishop more important, so they must go after him. And uh, Magneto's just going to have to wait. So at this point, Storm goes to talk to Quicksilver. You know, try and you know find out what's really going on. She knows that this decision has got to be pulling him apart. You know, how can he abandon his father to go after you know basically a total stranger? You know, he just says it's a logical decision, and he, you know he just basically you know he's the leader at this point, and he's acting like a leader. He can't think with his heart; he's got to think with his head. If Bishop is allowed to be taken, then all of this is for nothing, and and they've all basically you know wasted wasted the opportunity they had to to fix this. So the team loads up. The craft takes off, and so ends issue three. Issue four. So again, I, I, this is back to a cover that uh, that I really appreciate here. I like the uh, again the you know Bishop as we saw him before, where he's you know upside down. I think is a really cool rendering of him. A storm below him, you know, her costume all kind of shredded. The two of them being attacked, 
I just I like the detail on this. I like the color. You know, the colors are much more muted on the actual image themselves on this as compared to to the last issue. So again, a, a, a high point for 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 covers for for this series. And certainly the the less the the least bright colors of the covers as well, which is a yeah. A plus. The only thing I guess criticism I'll have is is the fact that the words "the Amazing X Men" are so bright and loud. It almost detracts your eyes from the image itself and they're kind of drawn they're kind <laughs> of drawn true. to that logo as opposed to uh you know to it being kind of a, a little more subdued uh, so the issue starts out and uh you know again back in the temple of the madri in quebec and uh then things start to get a little weird here where they're uh they're slicing up bishop and uh, drinking his blood and and the goblets they have even have like hieroglyphics on it which definitely fit into the whole apocalypse thing um and it looks like they're they're saying some sort of uh prayer or going through some sort of a uh, uh worship service as uh, as as they go through this and poor bishop is hung upside down bound in crazy manner where he's got these these huge things binding up his feet and his hands um and then these crazy tendrils that are around his neck and his arms as well so he's not going anywhere so again the madri are still kind of chanting uh you know this this prayer or whatever to to apocalypse the madri starts to to spill out the blood and all of a sudden it starts to get very cold the blood freezes uh the madri are you know you can see the, the their breath is turned to to vapor um and we see the 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 frost coming out um and we get this cool cool image of a storm coming straight down from the roof and throwing some sort of uh, lightning or whatever she as she uh freezes you know pulls the temperature in the room down to, to zero and uh, starts to kind of take these Madri out one at a time um, and comes up to poor Bishop who's locked up. And then it's a really cool storm moment where she takes out the lock picks that she has hidden in her costume. They have this really cool exchange of uh, Bishop and, and storm where she says, is the Aurora on, on the world you come from so different that she lost out on the things only an orphaned upbringing on the streets of Cairo could provide. And then Bishop says, actually my friend, I think you are not so different at all. So I thought that was a really cool callback to, uh, you know, that, that Storm's upbringing in the AOA versus this aren't, aren't very different from each other, that they're, you know, before things went to hell in a handbasket, she was pretty much the same little girl that we knew in, in the 616. Bishop asks if the X-Men are here, and she says, no, Quicksilver and Banshee are occupied elsewhere, so it's pretty much just uh, her and, it's just her at this point. So we cut back to the, to the rest of these Madri, and... Um, they find this, uh, I guess, I guess a, a higher up um, in, the, in the order here. This this monk or whatever. We see that uh, Pietro and and Banshee reveal themselves. It's kind of cool. This monk goes down by um, Banshee emitting this crazy hypersonic uh, sound that that pretty much scrambled, uh, you know, his, his his inner fluids that uh, that knocked him out cold. So they're able to kind of get into this this area where they find. Uh, the host body from which the Madri duplicates originated, the one true Jamie Madrox. Um, and this is a very cool but very disturbing a rendering of poor Jamie Madrox, where he's literally sitting in a room, wearing a diaper, drooling from the mouth, and playing with child's uh, toys. It's, it's really, it's really kind of creepy. Uh, not just kind of. I'd say it's full-blown creepy. 
Do you guys uh, did you, have you guys read Preacher? I can't remember. Yeah, same. Uh, I think I've read the first twelve issues. Okay, this okay, this very much reminds me of a, of a character in Preacher. The um, uh, they call him the Grail. He has like the holy bloodline in him, but he's just totally insane and uh, wears a diaper, just like Jamie here. So uh, at this point, uh, they, they come across again. They come across the the body of Jamie Madrox in this in this crazy state. But, you know, Banshee starts to question. You know, can we put a stop to the madry? You know, even if it means you know ending the life of this crippled, helpless man. So they're they're kind of torn at this point because uh, in order to to get rid of all these madry, and there's probably thousands of them, at least several hundred in this facility, let alone how many are spread out throughout uh, the rest of the world. You know, can't do they have it in them to kill this guy to be able to do that? So while they ponder that question, we cut back to the Westchester estate and we see that the astonishing X Men have returned to see you know what all has uh, has transpired. Uh, you know, they know that things don't look good. You know, Sabretooth is kind of uh, you know sniffing things out and you know says there's a plasma fire. Your husband was here. Apocalypse was here too. You know, basically that's it. The scent goes cold. There's nobody here except the Rusky and his wife. Which at this point we find. Uh, Peter and Kitty have succeeded in their mission, as we saw in Generation Next. They have Ileana, and uh, they've they've come back to the mansion. At, Rogue asks about what happened to the rest of the team, and uh, Colossus says, you know, they didn't make it. Again, like we saw in the previous miniseries, we did that uh, that the two of them plus uh, Ileana were the only ones to make it out alive. So again, kind of like we we talked about in the beginning this this fourth issue here everything is starting to converge the teams are coming back from their respective missions most of them successful um and they're all kind of regrouping and and relaying um you know what's happened happened before them uh so at this point you know they decide to go into the morlock tunnels kitty kitty uh relays the message from uh from pietro that uh exodus and dazzler are still in the tunnels looking for charles the the rest of them went to quebec to go find bishop and at this point uh Rogue is hot on the heels looking for her son, and so the three of them uh, journey into the Morlock Tunnels to, to go check it out. And I thought that was cool. I mean, I always, I've always been, you know, being kind of an old-school X-Men fan, I've always been a fan of the Morlock Tunnels. You know, I've said on many occasions, Mutant Massacre is probably my favorite comic book storyline of all time, um, which was heavily involved in that whole um, in that whole area. Um, one of my favorite X-Men issues is the big, I think it's 170, 171, the big fight with, uh, with uh, Storm and, Cal- and uh, Callisto, where they fight each other for uh, leadership of the Morlocks. So I thought that was a, you know, cool. So Is that the JRJR the first time on uh, I think that X-Men, one, that, that issue, or was that Paul Smith? I think that one was still Paul Smith. Let me, yeah, Paul Smith. X-Men 170, Callisto and Storm on the cover. This is before her Mohawk. 1983. Very close. I think I think J.R. J.R. came on in 176, I think was his first issue, if I'm not mistaken. Rogue's team comes down into the into the Morlock tunnels. They're they're hoping to find Charles, and they come across uh Gambit. And at at that point, uh Rogue is, is a little a little mad because they've they've come back and they don't have Charles with them. And we kind of saw how that played out in uh and Gambit and the Externals when they came back from their Macron, Macron uh, Crystal um, excursion, you know how that all played out, and and Strong Guy and the kid and the, how that ended up, and so she knocks Remy out and is just going crazy 
you know, trying to figure out, you know, what happened. And if, and if, if Gambit had anything to do with it, she will kill him. So at that point, we cut back to Quebec and the team. And we see that uh, Bishop and Storm are kind of making a, a, almost kind of like a last stand here. Their backs are literally up against the wall. It's a pretty cool page. The only thing that was odd was the coloring. I didn't. I don't know when Storm had the ability to emit some sort of green lightning or or whatever that is out of her out of her hands. It just seemed. It didn't seem very Storm like. I don't. I don't remember her being in any sort of uh, energy manipulator. But maybe she was. Uh, uh, tampered with as well. Hard to say. Maybe she was a Green Lantern that day. <laughs> Acid lightning rain? The Northern Lights. I don't know. <laughs> Aurora Borealis. Aurora Borealis. Aurora Borealis. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There you go. You're no prizes in the mail for noticing that she shot out Green Lantern. Yes, yes. Definitely a no prize. Not even really lightning, though. It's just beams. It is more green lantern-like. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's just kind of... I mean, Bishop makes sense because, I mean, again, he's a, he's able to take kinetic energy and channel it and re, and re send it back out. So that didn't that didn't uh, bother me in a, a bit. So, again, the, the two of them are kind of making their last stand against these army of Madri. And it's kind of cool. The, the panel that we see, it's kind of this mid, very widescreen panel of these Madri and the unif and the, the uniforms they have where they, their heads are covered and they have these kind of bubble things around their shoulders. It reminds me a lot of the burn revamp of super of Krypton, like how he drew the Kryptonians where they, you know, their bodies were all covered. Um, and it had kind of that similar motif where, uh, like I said, they had the, the thing over their head and the, and a lot of bubbles for whatever reason, there were a lot of bubbles on the, on the, in Krypton. Um, so then we cut back to Jamie Madrox, uh, Banshee and Quicksilver, you know, he basically saying, you know, kill me and the and the and the Madri replicants will be, you know, left with no souls. They'll just be basically shells. And and the two of them are kind of arguing over, you know, what they could do. You know, he's basically saying, look, you know, Madrox's not not to blame for what's happened, and he's having a really hard time uh, justifying and, and coming to terms with the facts that they need to kill him in order to uh, to stop this. Um, and at this point, their old friend Abyss comes back. He immediately starts to use his powers, unravels, um, and starts to attack the three of them. And this abyss, you could tell, is definitely much more pissed off and, and pretty pretty mean and nasty at this point. Because he is, it lo- almost looks like he's expanded his mass, too. Like, he's he's definitely bigger, you, you know, size-wise. So, the, again, the two of them kind of score off. Abyss just has this, uh, this kind of uh, running-of-the-mouth thing. He just keeps going on about you know, how great he is and, and his, you know, what he's going to do and, you know, taunting them and, and keeps going after them. And uh, at one point, Banshee says, show me a man with no fears, Abyss, and I will show you a fool. On that same page, what is up with uh, Pietro's head? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean there? It, lo- it looks like a it's MODOK or something. Yeah. He's running so fast that his face is compressed into his skull. <laughs> Uh, so at this point, Banshee is able to circle himself around and then just lets out this horrendous scream uh, directly at Abyss, which which stuns him. And it's kind of a cool thing where we see, uh, again, the sound effect is in the same perspective and uh, follows the same pattern as the as the effect, uh, the screaming effect that that's coming out. Which again, I really dig. Strike. <laughs> 
So at this point, I think Banshee's taking it on himself to know that he's the, he's going to be able to distract Abyss um, and to take him on one-on-one while uh, Pietro's able to get Madrox and get out of there. Pietro tries to talk him out of it, saying, you know, the X-Men need you, don't do this. And he says, you know, Pietro, my friend, the world needs one less of Abyss more than it needs one more of me. And and this is really cool, where he literally just embraces uh, Abyss head-on and just, just unleashes his powers just full, you know, just full on inside of him. And and that sonic uh, scream and that sonic uh, energy just literally is able to completely tear him apart and, and this time blow him up for good, which I thought was really kind of cool. We even see, like, almost like a mummy, you know, wrappings, you know, he's where he's literally come apart and we see these uh, pieces of ribbon, uh, it looks like, just kind of flying around everywhere. The only problem is all of that crazy sonic vibration and blowback has started to uh, weaken the structural inte- integrity of the of the facility, and uh, it starts to, to kind of come down around them. So at this point, Pietro is trying to console uh, Madrox. You know, he he knows what what needs to be done. You know, he says the only way to stop the Madri in time uh, to save your friends. And you know, again, Pietro says, you know, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to do it. And he just says he must die. And so at this point, he, he almost just, it's like he's just finally given up living. You know, Pietro doesn't, doesn't kill him, but he's, he's, he's just like lost his will to live and just, it's almost like he's just kind of killed himself. It's just kind of weird. Same thing that killed Padme, huh? Yeah, yeah. The broken heart. <laughs> and, the, and then very much in like a droid army kind of thing, like all the Madroxes just start to, to fall everywhere. Because the you know the main Madrox is dead, that all the dupes are, are dead too. You know they're trying to trying to figure out why. And as they enter out, Storm asks what happened to Sean, and um, Pietro says he sacrificed himself for for me for all of us. And you know Bishop says, well, what of this? You know what of Jamie? And he says his name was Jamie Madrox, and he sacrificed his life for us as well. Two good men dead. But again, Pietro's just kind of wasted at this point. He's just tired and worn out, and they're, and they're ready to move on. So at this point, we cut back to the Xavier estate, and uh, Rogue is ready to go at Gambit yet again. And uh, Gambit basically says, "Look, the the, you know, the the only way we could have saved him was giving him to Strong Guy. He was the only one when everything was coming down around us that could that could keep the the baby safe without um, without dying. And he's got the crystal too. So at that moment, um, in comes Nightcrawler with uh, with Destiny, and then." Even uh, Colossus gets in on the digs and basically says, you know, y- you know, everybody was able to kind of complete their mission except for uh, except for Gambit. And uh, at this point, kind of the crew is all united. Um, Pietro comes back. He says, you know, we have to regain the peace in the McCran crystal, crystal, rescue Magneto and my brother, uh, and then we will do what the X Men have always done: we give all, we give our all, our lives to make sure this is the day Apocalypse falls. And so ends issue four to be continued in X-Men Omega, which we will cover next time. Which has one of my favorite moments of the entire Age of Apocalypse uh, saga. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, uh, again, we will. It definitely ended on a high note for me. Um, so what do we what do we think? I mean, so there there we are with uh, Amazing X-Men. What, uh, what do you guys give it out of five? I think I'd probably give it a solid four. Nothing that really stuck up, stuck out as majorly off. You know, a couple weird little art things, but that's going to happen uh, from 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 time to time. It's it's one of those things where 
it's a 90s comic, like we've said many times, and so there's certain things that just don't hold up. But for a 90s comic and compared to the others, I think it's solid. I don't know if there's anything necessarily that stand out about it, aside from maybe Abyss's design and how they used them, but a solid four. I have to say the same. You know, it's again, it's a product of its time and, and definitely shows it. But, uh, you know, the, of, the, of the grouping of Age of Apocalypse, it's definitely in, in the upper tier, I thought. You know, uh, uh, again, some minor art quibbles aside, the story was fairly decent, easy to follow. You know, the characters made sense and were believable. Uh, so, yeah, four out of five for me as well. Well, I'll make it the hat trick. I, I also give it a... Yay. <laughs> I also give it a four out of five. I, again, I thought it was solid. I think this this story was very cohesive. It didn't it didn't have too many logic jumps, um, you know, like, like some of the other ones did. The art was pretty consistent uh, throughout the, the entire... Uh, the entire book, you know, again, product of its time. But I like the fact that everything kind of converged at, at the end of, of this story. Um, I like that, you know, f- the first couple issues were kind of almost like standalones. Um, but yeah, overall, pretty good. And uh, it's funny here back on this last panel, uh, even Rogue gets in on the I have a huge cape, I'm going to hold it in my fist uh, action going on. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's it. That's Amazing X Men. So I guess here pretty quick within the next few weeks, I would assume we will do X Men Omega, which is the big uh, double sized issue to end end it all. And I think at that point we'll give our uh, our final thoughts and and what we think of of the the sum and and you know how it you know long standing impacts you know what it meant to the X universe moving forward from this event. The other thing maybe we'll do. Is there there has been some reference to X Men Chronicles, so maybe what we'll do if you guys want, we can just read it and then some of it there's there's like separate stories that are in there instead of going issue by issue, kind of a story by story. But maybe if there's you know beats in there that kind of clarify some things or th- stuff we thought was cool, maybe we could just kind of point those out and just kind of chat about them for a little bit, but not um, not go into crazy detail like we have uh, for the last you know nine or ten shows. And then next week we have our famous uh, beginning of the month BS show for April. Uh, I know Jordan and I will probably be squawking quite a bit about Bioshock Infinite at that point. And uh, there are a lot of good comics yes, to talk about and movies and uh, a lot of other great stuff on our BS show. And then after. Yep. So that's it for this episode of Legion of Dudes. If you uh, would like to leave us a voicemail, you could do so at 516 468 7912. Send us an email at comments at legionofdudes.com. Check out the Facebook groups for the Legion of Dudes, as well as the other shows on the HHW LOD podcast network, the Walking Dead TV podcast, Out Now with Aaron and Abe, the Black Box, Sean Pryor's uh, podcast, uh, as well as Half Hour Wasted and the Shield podcast. Um, Hopefully things will be gearing up with that show and uh, John and Brad will be cranking out some more episodes uh, before too long. Um, And and Jersey Shore. Um, And Jersey Shore, Very, very soon we'll be seeing Jersey Shore as a part of the regular rotation. Yeah, if you want to hear me in negative mode for once, you need to listen to our Wolverine episode. I think it's the most negative <laughs> I've ever been on any show we've ever done. <laughs> and I'm not even that negative, but for me, yeah. it's Oh, it's also, speaking of me. X-Men and Wolverine, um, The Wolverine is going to be the next movie coming out, and uh, I think there's been a lot of, of buzz. There's been a lot more stuff coming out in that movie this, this week. Um, as you hear this podcast... The uh, the trailer ha- will have been released, so I'm sure on the next BS episode we'll be talking a lot about that. Hell, more of the trailer was released while we were podcasting. Is that right? 
Yeah, I just saw it pop up in my uh, in my RSS feeds. Nice. So again, that about does it for this week. Thanks everybody for joining us in the Age of Apocalypse. Um, so until next week, this is Russ, Jim, and Jordan, and we will see you again soon. Apocalyptically yours, baby.